Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. Yes, B-Team is up. That's right. My name is Jared Price. I am so excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. And we are going to look at that passage in John chapter 12 on the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem. This is Super Bowl week for the church. This is, this is go time, all right? Everything is climaxing in all four Gospels to this point, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He comes in this Sunday and Friday, as we're going to celebrate on Good Friday, he dies and on Sunday, praise God, he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead, right? So buckle up. This is going to be, I'm excited, so I hope you are too. Uh, I'm Jared Price again. If you, don't, if you don't know me, my wife uh, Janelle is over there. We have two beautiful children, Maggie and Audrey, and we love to call Paseo our home church. If you're new, welcome. Glad you are here. Um, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, so we're going to be teaching out of that. If you have any questions after the service, just come up, grab me, one of the elders, other leaders. We'd love to talk to you because uh, we're going to celebrate. We're, we're talking about something big this morning, Palm Sunday. Really, really interesting. Also, we're going to look at why it's called Palm Sunday. But up until this point, I'm not going to teach the whole Gospel of John, don't worry, but up until this point, a lot of things have happened in the life of Jesus. All right, he started off with doing something very controversial. He made a ton of wine out of water, right? So he did this miracle, made water into wine. Then he comes and heals this paralytic. Some people might have thought he was a quadriplegic. There, then he goes over to uh, heal some uh, people with leprosy does more miraculous healings, comes in John chapter 6 and feeds 5,000, it says men, so maybe upwards of 25,000 people with two fish and some loaves of bread, which I wish I was there for that miracle, just spontaneously creates it, right? And in John chapter 11, right before our text that we're coming into, he just raised a guy from the dead. Yeah, there's some stuff going on in Jesus' life, and now he's climaxing, coming into the holy city of Jerusalem on Passover feast, which we're going to talk about. If you don't know what that is, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but everything is boiling up, and people from both sides, people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead are meeting the crowds that are already in Jerusalem, and it's this climactic entry point where they are calling Jesus king. And what we're going to see is there's a lot of expectations milling around in the crowd. Maybe some have one, maybe some have all three that we're going to talk about, but there's expectations they have of Jesus. And anytime a person is put into a position of power, there's always expectations placed upon them. And we get so excited for them that they're going to be there because we think they're going to do great things for us. I remember I was in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute in 2008 when uh, President Obama was elected, his hometown, you know, Chicago. And I remember when they announced it on TV, you just could hear people screaming outside. And 
You know, I, I walked outside, I looked out through my window, and people are just like dancing in the streets, so amped. I'm sure there's people like just crying alone in their rooms. But you know, other, uh, for the most part, everybody in Chicago was so excited because they had expectations that what this person could do for them. We, we all have expectations of various things. And we're going to look at expectations placed upon Jesus, but even just think now of the expectations we have in our own lives. Alexander Pope, the uh, poet and philosopher, once said, Blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. That's a great statement. That is so true. Ex- unmet expectations can cause so many, so many disruptions and frustrations and cause us to be angry when we were expecting one thing and it didn't go our way. Uh, a blogger named Derek Harvey, a writer in Texas, uh, attended a conference, a marriage conference, and one of the first things that was said by the keynote speaker was that the single most reason for divorce in, the Amer- in America was unmet expectations. People expected one thing out of marriage and got something completely different. We all expect certain things. Shortly, uh, a little while ago, I was on a three-month uh, augment, which is a very short deployment for those military members in here. And I was out and I walked into my buddy's room that I met on this, uh, this short augment, and he was just a sour patch. You know, you walk in, you ever meet someone that just looks like they just took a bite out of a Granny Smith apple and they're just, just kind of angry, frustrated, and he kept saying this line over and over again. This isn't what I signed up for. Right? And, you know, he'd say that over again. This isn't what I signed up for. This is, he used colorful language. And he, <laughs> he kept on talking about his unmet expectations with what the military had provided for him. I think a lot of people who have been in the military can attest to that. But on the one side, I mean, what do you expect? We joined, joined the Navy. Like, they own us completely. Like, we signed that line, and they own us. We all have expectations in life. Expectations of children. Uh, when I first had Maggie, I was a very, very naive father. I, I expected my children to obey me. <laughs> exactly, says all the parents laughing in the room. Or I expected when I, when I would tell Maggie not to touch something, I would expect her not to touch it. Seems like, new, like you know, wild that I would expect that. I remember the first time this happened, I knew life was going to be hard. Where I told her, Maggie, don't touch the outlet, you know, the little outlets in the house. And I'd walk away, I went into the kitchen, but I would look over, and I saw those little eyes look at me. And then the little finger just started to reach. What are you going to do, Dad? Like, where, where's the button that I can push, right? We have expectations, and then child got beat. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so <laughs> we have expectations. Expectations, if you go to a college, you expect certain things out of your school. Marriage, nobody has expectations coming into marriage, Right? Tons of expectations in marriage, uh, military, profession, occupation, work, church. You have expectations right now of me, of this service, of this congregation, maybe things you don't even realize. Some of them are good and maybe some of them are misplaced. I don't know. We're going to find out. Retirement, expectations of where you should be at by a certain point of life, and unmet expectations always bring frustration, disappointment, and what we're going to see a little later 
anger, and even rejection of relationship. In the military, we do something called expectation management. What we do is we sit guys down where we give them a little brief like, hey, this is what you can expect going out. It's going to suck. <laughs> so you do this expectation management so that when guys go out, they're not thinking it's going to be World War II. They're going to punch Hitler in the face. They're going to have an understanding of what they're going to do on the deployment. And so this morning, what I want to do with you is some expectation management with Jesus Christ. I want to set the stage for how, what things you can expect from Jesus. What can you expect in being a follower of Jesus? Now, we're going to see first by looking at what Israel expected of Jesus and how their misplaced expectations and unmet expectations led to their rejection and crucify, crucifying Christ. I just gave you the end there. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. And we'll try our best to stick there, though we may find ourselves in other verses as well. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. We're going to look at how the unexpected Christ will crush all of your expectations. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Before we jump into this passage too much, we gotta we gotta define a couple things. The first thing is, if you're, if you're new to church, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. That's a title. The word Christ means anointed one. For, for Israelites, that word means the anointed one is the Messiah. There's so much expectation rooted around that word, Messiah. They're expecting him to come be the, be the king of Israel, be the, the final prophet, to be the priest who will bring about ushering them into the presence of God. The, the Messiah is a deeply rich, rooted, contextual word. And for them, to, for them to call Jesus the Christ throughout the Gospels, just understand what that means when they're, when they're calling him that. So, the unexpected Messiah is my title. If you look at verse, 13, uh, verse 12, it says, Now the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This feast is Passover. And I was going to actually pass over Passover because I felt like most people kind of know what Passover is. But I was sitting down recently with my buddy and I said, hey man, you know, I'm teaching this message. Why don't you just go ahead? You've been a Christian for a long time. Tell me what the Passover is. He's like, uh, I, I don't know. I have no idea what the Passover is. I think you, something about, you know, eating a meal, right, in an upper room. I'm like, no, that's, okay, anyway. So the Passover is this. The Passover is an eight-day-long celebration feast. Yeah, like we need more Passovers to celebrate. Imagine Thanksgiving, like every single day, just, man, big bellies, enjoying life, everybody coming together. During Passover in Jerusalem, instead of a large crowd, the, the Jewish historian Josephus said that there would have been upwards of 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. And at that time, that is an enormous crowd in a smaller city. 
So much so that people couldn't stay in the city. There was no room for them. They had to go into the outskirt towns and stay there. So there's tons of people there. And this feast was all to remember what God had done in saving Israel from oppression and occupation of Egypt. And so, if you remember a little bit of what happened with the 10 plagues with Pharaoh, the Passover feast remembers all the plagues, remembers the deliverance in the wilderness, and culminates with them coming into the promised land. And there is a specific remembrance of that that destroyer, the angel of death that comes as the last plague where the Israelites are told to put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes. What this would do is when the destroyer came over the land of Egypt, the destroyer would look and see the blood of the lamb, and that blood would then be the sacrifice from that home, and it would pass over the sins of that home, and the firstborn child, the firstborn of an animal in that house, would not be killed. And so it's a remembrance of God's provision, not only of salvation, but also of, of, of saving them by that Passover angel. Angel. So there's a lot of context. There's a lot of rich imagery being taught and, and what they're studying every day already in John chapter 12. It's going to be really important for what we talk about later. So they're celebrating Passover. And then, not to mention this, it says the great crowd, the large crowd of Jesus learned that Jesus was there. And they're kind of, they're met by this crowd that's coming from Bethany. So there's these two crowds coming. Now, why is a crowd coming from Bethany? John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Now, I said, Jesus has already done a lot, of, a lot of miracles, right? He also raised a dude from the dead. If you've never heard the story of Lazarus, I just got to go there real quick. I just, I have to, because it's phenomenal. Picture this. Jesus says in John chapter 11, he's there with everybody gathered around. There's people like crying because he's dead for a couple of days. The, they think the body would have stank by that time. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. Come forth. And, and it says Lazarus walked, but in reality, he was wrapped up with about 75 pounds of cloth. So he probably would have been just kind of like coming out like this. And he's got this wrapping over his whole face. And it's hilarious because then Jesus tells them, like, he's like, go, go help him quickly. Go unwrap him. So, because he, I don't know, maybe he's going to fall over, hit his head. He's going to die again. He's going to have to raise him back again. Like, maybe he's going to suffocate and all that wrapping. So, not only did he just heal this guy, raise this guy from the dead, and that crowd that saw it, you know, who knows? It doesn't say it in the text, but maybe Lazarus was a part of that crowd coming, and they're like, hey, you want to know what Jesus just did? He raised a guy from the dead, and it's him. He can tell you about it. Ask him. And I was just like, yeah, it's true, man. I was dead. And I'm back alive. I came out. I was wrapped up in, I don't know why people wrapped me up in stuff. And I was dead. Isn't that amazing? That's what the craziness around Jesus is going on right now. And so you have all this kind of culminating, climaxing into what we see with this triumphant entry. So what did the crowd expect? I think there's three things that the crowd expected. There might have been more. There might have been, I don't think there was less. (laughs) I think there, there might have been maybe more subtle expectations. I think some people may have only had one or two of these or maybe all three. But these are the things I think we can see from the text that the crowd expected of Jesus. And the very first thing is salvation from oppression and occupation. And this is where I see it. 
Verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. When was the last time you went outside, cut down a palm tree, and you cut out a palm branch, you're like, man, I just want to honor this person. I'm just going to wave them, wave some palm trees in front of them, you know, palm branches. It's so weird, right? Like, why would anybody do that? It, there, it doesn't seem to be a logical reason. But if you know Israel history, 140 years before this time, a dude named Maccabee came and actually liberated Israel. And one of the things that they did to celebrate was the waving of palm branches. So much so that it continued on. It made its way into their currency. A little coin was fashioned with a palm branch on it, and it meant liberation. And so one of D.A. Carson, really well-known theologian, says, in this instance, it may have well signaled nationalist hope that the Messiah liberator was arriving on scene. The sign that Israel believed their liberation was at hand. Liberation from who? Rome. Because right now they're under occupation. Rome occupied Israel, and they are hoping for restoration to, be, to re- remove ocu- the Roman occupation from them. So they have this hope in Jesus coming as that liberator. Also, look at Hosanna. Now, who thinks, besides Gary, they can tell me definition of Hosanna? We got some. Okay, what do you think it is? Lord save. That is actually, that's, that's pretty much it, right? Like save us, right? Nailed it. How many others would have got it? Now everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally would have got it, right? Save us. Save us is the actual original word. So how, how Greek understood this word is the Greek word is just Hosanna. It was a straight transliteration from the Hebrew word. The original meaning of this word was that idea, save us. The idea is of a person drowning. If you picture a person drowning, and it's not just that they're just swimming and they're like, hey, save me, but I got time because I can kind of float on the surface. Like, it's the idea that they've been out there for hours. Their clothes are saturated. They're beginning to be pulled under the surface of the water. The last breath that they have, they're screaming out, Hosanna, save me. It's that desperation of I need you, I'm helpless. The word began to shift though in Hebrew culture throughout the, throughout the time of when that original word was used and it began to later mean the reflection of after somebody had reached in, pulled them out and saved them, it's salvation is here. So it's this double meaning of, I need to be saved and my Savior is here. That's the Hosanna. When they're saying Hosanna, they're declaring that the person that is in front of them is bringing about their salvation. It's, uh, this, this quotation is actually taken from Psalm 118.25, but it tacks on here this little line at the very end, even the king of Israel. So we have this Hosanna, this this, this saving of the people. And I think it's oppression and occupation of Rome. You can look elsewhere in the Gospels where the Pharisees try to entice Jesus to lead this rebellion. One of the things that's very common that uh, you might have heard before is where they ask him about taxes. Like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because if Jesus says no, then boom, we can hit him on that and then Rome will come and... Uh, 
Rome will come. I love the cries of babies, don't you? So, so stinking sweet right there. Love it. Um, and, 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 and they wanted to trap him so that they could arrest him. So I think one of the things that Jesus, the people are expecting of Jesus is salvation from the oppression and occupation of Rome. Second, salvation from hunger, disease, and death. Why do I think that? John chapter 6, he does a miracle. Takes a couple pieces of mahi, mahi, tuna, whatever you like, and just feeds upwards of 25,000 people. It says 5,000 men, so probably around 25,000 people. And the way it just says it's a spontaneous act of he just keeps on giving them food. Who doesn't want that person to be king, right? It's like, man, we can have fish barbecues all the time. Just, just circle up, never have to work a day in your life. Just eat, eat all the fish you want. I love mahi-mahi. Sounds great. So they want to take Jesus and they want that, that salvation from maybe either working or maybe in that day and age, there's not a lot of refrigerators. You got to use salt to preserve meat. So they want that constant security of food, but as well disease. He had done so many healings, so many signs. Even today, so much of our prayers are centered around healing from disease, from affliction, from illness, from chronic pain. Or even as they just saw a dude got raised from the dead from salvation from death. That's the best life insurance policy possible. Make this dude king and he'll never, no one will ever die. It's great. Might have to unwrap him a bunch of times, but it's going to be great. Salvation from hunger, disease, and death. Third thing I believe that they were focused on and that they expected from their Messiah coming in was this salvation of kingdom restoration and prosperity. Israel was a proud nation. The, Israel used to be the most dominant force in the area. And their covenant that God made with David was that there would always be a king to sit on the throne. And they were expecting that Messiah, the one, the chosen one, to come and restore to Israel its former glory and bring about prosperity Oftentimes, they talk about the gold that was in the temple of Solomon's temple that, to bring back the prosperity, to, to bring the land that flows with milk and honey. I know we don't think of that as riches, but back then, that meant riches. If you got milk and honey, man, you're set. And so they have this expectation of kingdom restoration. You see this in the text when they tack on this, even the king of Israel. And then the quotation of Zechariah 9.9, fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This was a 450-year-old prophecy that was being fulfilled in front of their very eyes. Amazing. But they didn't totally get it, as verse 16 says. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So we have these three things that I think the crowd expected of their Messiah, of Jesus. I want to ask you this. Has our expectations changed a whole lot? I don't think so. When was the last time you were either in prayer for yourself, for somebody else, prayer group, and you prayed for something oppressive to be removed? Whether it be maybe spiritual oppression, Financial, relational, someone's causing pain in your, your, your sphere of influence. 
We don't often think about the occupation. We're like, yeah, we're free. We are free in America, and it's amazing, but we're not the only Christians in the world. There's many Christians in this world who are currently under physical occupation by a, a government that does not favor Christianity. Recently, I was in a country where my uncle was, and we met up for coffee, and we're hanging out at Starbucks in this random country, which was awesome. It's like Starbucks is everywhere. It's taking over the world. And we were having coffee, and I started asking him things about his faith because he's a Christian believer, and he's like, hey, uh, I'm happy to talk about that with you later, but we can't talk about that here. Like, uh, people are listening to our conversation, and we just can't talk about that here. Very, very different around the world. People are praying from salvation, from tyranny, from oppression, from occupation. I think it's very true today. What about this one? What about, what about salvation from disease or illness? We never pray for healing, do we? Never pray for that. In, in groups, like, sometimes you get together in a prayer group, and it's only for illnesses that we're praying for, only for health issues. One of, uh, we got our students in the room. I'll go ahead and pick on you guys a little bit here. Not you guys in particular. It's actually my group back when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for four years in Indiana. And I'll never forget this one prayer meeting we had, and there's this little seventh grade girl, and you always hear the most interesting things come out of seventh graders, right? Seventh graders? You're like, yeah, yeah, they know they're cool. So this seventh grade girl, we were in this prayer meeting, and people are, you know, asking for prayer for different things, and she just looks so sad. She's got her head down, and like, I, I just want prayer, you know, I'm really sad about this, and it's been, been struggling, but I just want prayer for my cat. Like he's, just, he's just not himself lately. I don't know what's wrong, but my cat's just not myself. It's himself. And like I wanted to be that, I wanted to be like just a terrible youth pastor and be like, what? What are you praying for? It's an animal. But some of you, I know, you love your dogs and cats, so I don't want to offend anybody right now. I'm in California. Got to be careful. <laughs> Pay 20 grand for an operation on a dog. Anyway, watch out. <laughs> we have significantly put in priority the things that matter most to us, which is often our physical well-being, right? Still have that just as they did then. We still have it today. And of course, absolutely, we today absolutely want to be prosperous. We want to be in an underneath a government that is gracious, that is good, that is fighting for righteousness. We want to be people who have wealth, right? We do. We want that. I think a lot of the same things that are true in Jesus' day are true in our day. How many people have you heard say things like, come to Jesus and you'll be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Come to Jesus and all your suffering will be removed. Maybe you're new here and you've heard things like this. You've heard people say things like, come to Jesus and you'll never experience pain again. Man, come to Jesus, you'll be so happy, you'll be so joy-filled. Someone could come up and just slap you in the face, you're like, do it again. You know, and you'll just be, just be all, all bubbly all the time. You've been a Christian very long, you know that's not true. So where... What do we do with our expectations upon Jesus? Because doesn't Jesus say to ask whatever you will in my Father's name and I'll give it to you? Doesn't he say things like come to him for healing 
Doesn't he say that he wants to bring blessings upon you? What are we to expect from following Jesus? Stir on that, mull on that as we look at what happens with the result of Israel's reaction with the unexpected Christ. Something happened after Palm Sunday. Something changed in the people. From those who went to go meet Jesus on those initial steps, something changed from that day to Friday, right? One of the things Jesus did is instead of riding his little donkey, instead of riding his donkey straight up into the Roman garrison and leading a charge for uh, freedom from oppression and occupation, he rode by the temple, the Gospels say. If you look at the synoptics, it says he goes to the temple and then he goes back to Bethany. And then Monday morning, he comes back to the temple. He doesn't go to Pilate. He doesn't go to the Roman garrison. He goes to the center of Jewish worship. And he doesn't come in to lead a revolt. He comes in to flip tables. He comes in and flips the tables of the money changers. He drives people out because they have corrupted the worship of God. This is not a pacifist version of Jesus. This is a bold King Jesus who has come to change the way that people have worshipped God. In one of the Gospels, Gospel uh, Mark, Mark eleven sixteen, it says that Jesus wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. Whether that's verbally, he's not saying, hey, you, don't you carry that. Or physically, I don't know how he is not letting them do this, but he is an imposing force against the very people who are hoping that he, free, they, that he will free them. I was like right before middle school. I think it was elementary school. I was on a basketball team, and I was the tallest dude, obviously, right on my team. I was, I was doing the jump, got the jump ball, went to a buddy, he threw it to me, and I had an open breakaway, saw the hoop, right? And I start going, start going for it, you know, like a little my little elementary school stuff, nobody's behind me. Nobody's close to me. I start hearing people yelling, no, and I think it's like the other team yelling at their guys, going up, layup, score, rocky fist bump, you know, like right up in the air, like just feel like I just dominated the floor, only to find out I just scored on my own basket, <laughs> right? And now everybody's like, you doofus, Ugh, just screaming and yelling at me. The expectation was I would not score on my own basket, during this game, and the unmet expectation resulted in my own team hating me. The Jews are like, what are you doing, Jesus? We're on your team, and you're, you're flipping tables? Who are you? What gives you the right to do this? Shouldn't you be going to Rome? What about the healings, Jesus? Aren't you supposed to heal us? He doesn't do one healing during the Passover week. What about the kingdom, Jesus? Aren't you going to come and sit on the throne? He doesn't sit on the throne. In fact, he gives indictment, indictment against the religious authorities, and they begin to plot to kill him. Sunday, they're crying Hosanna. Friday, they're crying crucify him. All because... What they wanted from Jesus, they didn't get. 
There's more that goes into that as well, and it's not always that simple. But essentially, in the baseline, what people wanted from Jesus was something that would improve their life, their comfort, their status, their position. And what Jesus demands for someone is to sacrifice all that. It's very possible this morning that you're here and Jesus hasn't met your expectations. Maybe you're brand new. Maybe this is your first time at church in a while. Maybe you're an atheist and you want to investigate Christianity and you've got questions and glad you're here. Awesome. Maybe you've been told things that Jesus would do for you that he hasn't done. You've been told he would heal you if you pray hard enough, and he hasn't. You're told that he would, he would correct the financial turmoil you're in, and he hasn't. You've been told that he would per, provide for you in, in ways that maybe I can't know in your, in your individual life right now, but he hasn't. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and Jesus hasn't shown up. You're living on the past fumes of previous blessings, and that energy is starting to kind of get depleted. What do you expect from Jesus? I believe that this passage, a little later on, what we see, Jesus outlines this for us clearly. He tells us exactly what to expect. And there's two things from God's word that I want you to hear of what you can expect from Jesus Christ. From following Jesus Christ, these are two things that you can expect. And the first is found in verse 25 and 26 in John chapter 12. Some Greeks come up to Jesus. They want to hear and talk with Jesus, and this is Jesus' response to them. Verse 25. Actually, let's just start in verse 23. I did this last time too, just creature of habit. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The very first thing Jesus says you can expect if you become a follower of Jesus Christ is this. You're going to lose your life. Now, that's the way to start a movement, right? <laughs> he says this. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. Now, what does that mean? Does Jesus want us to just hate our lives? Does he want us to just be like, oh, woe is me. This is a terrible life. No. What he's talking about here is he's, he's using a hyperbolic statement to put two things in contrast. He's using this to say, like, for those who want their life to be comfortable in their life, to, to want things presently more than him, they're going to lose that life. But when people want him more than anything else, so much so that if anybody looked at it, it would look like they actually hate their life. Those are the people that are going to save it for eternal life. And what he's talking about there isn't this like you're going to, you can save yourself by what you want. It's talking about who, why are you coming after him? Why do you follow him? 
Is it for personal comfort? Or is it because he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the creator, the sustainer, the savior God who came to live a perfect life and die a perfect death on your and my behalf? If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your savior, I just want to describe for you briefly that process of what happens. On the cross, something insane happens. See, everybody had already been studying the Passover. They were remembering the Passover angel of how the blood of the lamb allowed the destroyer to pass over their sinful house. And now they're going to see before them, and I'm going to try and not steal your sermon on Easter and on Good Friday, but they're going to see before them the blood of the Savior and how that blood is going to pay the penalty for their sin so that they place, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we place our sin upon the cross and he pays that penalty because any sin against an eternal God requires an eternal punishment. And the beautiful thing is he doesn't just pass over our sin. He extends to us his righteousness. And so on the cross, he imputes to us, is the language we get from Scripture, he gives us and clothes us with his righteous life so that when God looks upon you and me, he doesn't see sinner, he sees saint. When he looks upon us, he sees us clothed in the life of Jesus Christ. No matter if we sin past, present, future, he sees us clothed with the glory of Jesus Christ and he says, this is my child. All by placing our faith in the Son of God. But that faith is coming to him in a very specific sense. In Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That Lord is the is, is Lord as in he is the king of your life. He is your everything. That you must be ready to come to him and hate your own life to surrender all things over to King Jesus. My prayer is that you consider that this morning. What is your expectation following Jesus? Is it for personal comfort or is it to sacrifice everything? To, like he says in Luke 14, 33, that you're ready to renounce all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Christian in the room, my, my prayer for you is that you would want to say with Paul, my favorite passage in Philippians, I'm going to read it for you, and, and I pray that these would be your desired words. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss compared to the knowing, the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I count all things as rubbish. I count, I count the color of my grass as rubbish. I count my reputation amongst people as rubbish. I count the number 
in my bank, my savings account, my 401k that's dropping fast. I count those things as rubbish. I count my comfort, my health as rubbish because all that matters is King Jesus. I want to know him. I want to give my life to him. I want to see people come to know him, and I want the world to proclaim the name of Jesus because you know what? Right now, we're living in that time of peace where he came on a donkey, but he's coming on a donkey, not again on a a second time. He's coming on a horse. He's coming on a war horse with a sword in his hand, and he's coming to bring judgment upon the world. He's coming with king of kings and lord of lords tattooed on his thigh. Whether you like that interpretation or not, he has that written on his thigh. And when he comes, the time of peace will be over. He's coming for judgment. Pray that it would seek into all of our hearts that would set our expectations that this life is nothing but a breath. It is a breath to be breathed for Jesus. So one, you can expect this. You're going to lose your life. Be warm and filled. (laughs) No, secondly, what you can expect will also seem contradictory to my message here, but in reality, it's not. What you can expect is this, that he will fulfill every single thing he has said he will, and he will fulfill every expectation you've ever had. The Jews... And Israel in that time expected those things to take place immediately, and in reality, they did. They just didn't understand how. When Jesus died on that cross and rose again on that third day, he conquered Satan, sin, and death. He conquered the occupation and oppression of a sinful, depraved heart, and he gave us a new heart. He conquered the hunger and diseased longings that we have spiritually for something more in this life, and he gave that to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He conquered, and he came and he said, the kingdom of heaven is here, now. And it will be established when he comes again. Not only spiritually did he fulfill everything, but one day physically he's gonna fulfill everything we hope for. If you read the book of Revelation, you can see that when he comes again and when the new heavens and the new earth come, you're going to be given a new body, right? Like, praise God, because it's it's kind of deteriorating, right? You'll be given a new body, and you're going to live eternally. There's going to be no more hunger, but you're still going to eat. Isn't that awesome? You're still going to enjoy the taste of food, but you're never going to be hungry. You're going to work, but you're not going to be tired. You're going to have relationships without sin. Can you even imagine that? Imagine a new heavens and a new earth that's not stained by sin. Like we live in San Diego and it's gorgeous, but the new heavens and the new earth are coming is going to be far greater than anything you can imagine. You can expect that every single thing that you hope for will be done when you come to Jesus just for him, not because you're trying to get something from him. The expectation is this. The unexpected Christ will fulfill all that he has said for those 
who are ready to lose their lives for him. I'll close with just finishing what Zechariah prophesied many, many years ago, 450 years before Jesus. He said this, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Jesus sets us free. Jesus will bring salvation now and greater salvation when he comes again. But you need to approach and follow Jesus according to how he has said, not how you want. Consider these things and reflect as we get to sing his praises. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the ability to be able to open up your word, to be with a church that wants to open your word, learn from your word, study your word, and do it. God, I pray if there's any believers or unbelievers in this room that they would greatly wrestle over who you say you are. You are offering forgiveness, grace, and peace now, but one day judgment is coming. Pray as Christians, we would, we would look upon that and just have an incredible desire to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus now. You've given us a breath, which is this life. I pray that all of us would desire to use it for you, King Jesus. We love you, Lord, and now we lift our voices in praise.